Our reading is taken from John Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. On your few Bibles, you can find it on page 1110. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother says to him, they have no wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tell you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled, it, they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of banquet tested the water that had been turned into, water, into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone bring out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He does reveal his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Amen. Well, today we're having a look at at the first of the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. A great way for you to prepare each week as we're looking through this series is to just read ahead each week. We're just working consecutively, chapter by chapter. So read ahead, meditate on it, think about what God might be teaching you, what it teaches you about God and about yourself, and come a bit uh, prepared. So let me encourage you to do that. But as we consider this passage, let's join our hearts in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do teach us, you revealed your glory in your Son, Jesus, and we pray that we'll see it today as we reflect on this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at the story of a wedding. And I still remember the first time I conducted a wedding, officiating the marriage. And I remember, the, remember it because, boy, I was so nervous. Just here, in fact, I conducted my first wedding here. Here on this stage, at that time actually, there's no stage, but I was sweating. I could feel drips of sweat coming down from my forehead, my, my shirt getting all wet and sweaty. The groom standing next to me, he, he was pretty peaceful. He was okay. I was so far more nervous than he was. Uh, but weddings can be joyous occasions, can't they? Unless, of course, things go wrong, which is why I always avoid the classical questions that ministers ask at the beginning of the wedding. You know that question? 
that the question they ask uh, is this. If anyone can show any reason why this marriage would not be lawful, now is the time to declare it or forever hold your peace. I would never dare ask that question because I would have no idea how to respond. If someone says, yes, I've got a problem, I liked her first, I liked him first, I, I would not know what to do. So I avoid that question. But weddings are joyous occasions unless things go wrong. And at my own wedding, something did go wrong. On the way to the church, to the ceremony, I thought it would be a good idea to memorize the vows. It would just make the day so much more special, so much more meaningful. And so as we were going to the church in the limo, I was desperately trying to memorize the vows. And guess what happened? When we were exchanging the vows, I was perfect, the first line. And then I got a mental blank for a few seconds. It felt like hours. It was so embarrassing. And so the minister had to quietly whisper, well, this is what you're getting married for. Here are the vows. That was my problem. It felt like it went on forever. But Yvonne, when she went to recite, she memorized that she knew what marriage was about. I forgot. But anyway, I made the vows. It was all legal and legitimate. But weddings are joyous occasions unless things go wrong which is what I say in our premarital course. Uh, we're giving counsel to a, a couple at the moment, and we always warn them before the day, if things can go wrong, they may, but it's okay. You'll get married anyway. But in our passage today, we come to a wedding story, and something did go wrong. And when we read it before, I wonder whether you felt, I mean, isn't this a fascinating story? So interesting but why is this story here in the Gospel of John, right at the very beginning after Jesus was baptized? Why is this included in the Gospel of John? I mean, Jesus could have included, or the Apostle John could have just skipped this miracle and put something more spectacular at the very beginning. I mean, this is a strange miracle. No one is sick here. No one has leprosy. No one is blind. No one is dying. And so, why this here? Why not start with something far more spectacular, the calming of the storm, the raising of the dead girl? But here you've got a bunch of teenagers getting married, facing some social embarrassment. Seems like such small business for Jesus, so menial. And so why? Well, let's have a look. Do keep your Bibles open. We always work our way through verse by verse. So first we see the problem. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana. And then we read in verse 3, the wine was gone. So what's the big deal? Wine was gone. Just drink some water. That's okay. I mean, at a modern reception, if the tab is closed, drink soft drink or the juice or just live off water. It's fine. So why the big deal? Well, this is where understanding the cultural differences helps. In first century Palestine, weddings could go on for a week long. And even today in parts of the Middle East, they still do. And they are a big deal because the whole community is invited to the wedding. It is a big deal. And it's a culture where honour and face matters a lot. Honour and face matters. And so it would be a huge offence to guess if there was not enough food or wine. It was a huge social embarrassment. And it was a big deal for them. And it's perhaps why even today, amongst all the nations, countries of the world, do, do you know which country spends most on weddings? 
is in fact a country in the Middle East. It's apparently the United Arab Emirates. Get this, I found this shocking. The cost of an average wedding is about, in Australian dollars, $250,000. An average wedding. In Australia, we can get by by $500. Or, now, normally, it's about $30,000, but there, $250,000. And why? It's that culture, the culture of honour. There's a large pressure always to conform and avoid criticism that may impact the family honour, and so you have to spend big. And, and, and so here, you see, this groom, there was huge social embarrassment. And so though it might not seem like a big deal to us, it was to them, and so here in this story we read of Mary, who was perhaps a close relative or friend of those getting married, goes to Jesus, verse 3, they have no more wine. Now that seems like quite an innocent request from mother to son. But now look at how Jesus responds. This is perhaps one of the most shocking verses in this whole gospel. Verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Now what do you make of that? Dear woman, to your mother. I mean, would you ever dare say that? I mean, in a different generation, this is when the slap comes around. Dear woman to your mother. And so what do you make of that? Well, this is where something is lost in translation. In fact, in the Greek, there's no word dear at all. It is just woman. It is just woman. And so if anything, in the original, it's far harsher. Woman. And so at least, at the very least, it was a measured rebuke to his mother. And the question is literally this. What to me and to you? That was the question of Jesus. What to me and to you? That is, what do you and I have in common, woman? You have no claim on me, woman. Now, do you hear that big slap? Imagine saying that to any mother. So how do we make sense of this? Well, of course, we have to agree and accept that Jesus would never waste his words. He would carefully choose his words. I mean, he is the word of God, the son of God. He's not going to make a mistake with his words. And so what do you make of it? Well, we get a clue with what Jesus says next. Look at verse 4. My time has not yet come. So that gives us context for why he would say the first line. How, why do you involve me, woman? My time has not yet come. So what is Jesus talking about there? What is this time that he's speaking of? Well, you see, that is the clue that unlocks this whole story. In the Gospel of John, we see this theme of time, the hour of Jesus has not come, has not come, and we see it repeated over and over again. And so in 5.25, the hour is coming, 7.6, my time has not yet arrived, 7.8, my time has not yet fully come. 7.30, they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour has not yet come. What is this hour, this time of Jesus? What is he referring to? And then we come to chapter 12.23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now what is that speaking of, this hour that will come? Well, it is speaking about his own death on the cross. On the cross of Christ, 
That is where Jesus is glorified. And so the theme of glory we saw at the very beginning of the Gospel of John is carried through. And the glory of God is seen ultimately in these signs, but ultimately at the cross, at the death of Jesus. But now you have to ask the question, why would Jesus... I mean, his, his mother asked quite an innocent uh, question, there's no more wine. Why would he be thinking about his own death? She's just saying, here's a problem, no more wine. Why would Jesus go on thinking about his own death? That is strange. Well, it is because of this. All weddings, like this wedding, they all look forward to the ultimate wedding. The wedding to end all weddings. And it's the wedding of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. It is always looking forward to the great banquet in heaven. And so even as we celebrate weddings here on earth, they are always pointers to look forward to the greater wedding, the greatest one of all. As we share in banquets, they are looking forward to the greatest banquet of all. It's what I try to make clear at every wedding I officiate. I say this. I say the Bible begins with a marriage, but it also ends with a marriage. And that's because it is to be seen as a sign of the loyalty and love that exists, not just between you two getting married, but between Christ and his bride, Christ and his church. And so our human marriages, they're designed by God as mere shadows of the ultimate marriage in the end of days, the ultimate marriage, the lasting one, between Christ and his bride. And so whatever joy and intimacy we enjoy in human marriages, there is far greater to come, and that is in heaven, in Christ. And so here, at this wedding in Cana, it seems like such a menial problem, no more wine, but it was looking forward, and Jesus was thinking about this greater eternal wedding. It's in fact the one anticipated throughout the Old Testament, there were, that there would one day be this great banquet of God. We heard of that in our first reading, Isaiah 25. Remember that? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And then it goes on in Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. You see, it was expected. They were to anticipate that one day there will be the great banquet of God when death will be finally dealt with. Tears wiped. Even in Amos, we see this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. It was the great expectation of the Old Testament, the great banquet of abundance, where wine would just drip and flow. In fact, in the next chapter, John the Baptist, people were deserting John and going to Jesus instead. But John understood who Jesus was. He's the bridegroom. He says, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. John is making a point. The people of God here, they don't belong to me. I'm just a messenger. They belong to Christ. He's the bridegroom. And he goes on to say, The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. 
So John recognised, the bridegroom has come, and I'm filled with joy. And that the end of history ends with the marriage, and we see in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So why use this description of marriage? The marriage between the bridegroom, between the Lamb of God and his church, it is to speak of the intimacy that will be everlasting. Whatever good marriages we enjoy now, it is going to be far better, completely fulfilled one day. And so here, as Jesus was asked by his mother about this wedding, in a sense, he was casting his mind forward right into the very future of his own wedding, of his own wedding, of his own heavenly banquet. The groom here at this wedding in Cana, before his wedding, he would have been stressed out, thinking about all the things and the preparations, the costs, the reception, the wine, the food, the limo, the photographer. He would be stressed out by all the wedding preparations. And so in a sense, what Jesus was thinking about is for that heavenly banquet to take place, for me to throw a wedding for my bride, the church, it will cost me not money and time and stress. It will cost me my blood. It will cost me my life to me, for me to throw a wedding for the bride. I'll have to die one day to welcome the bride to me. And that's why Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And so do you see why Jesus said those words to his mother? Why do you involve me? What do we have in common? Because woman, you have no idea what you're asking here. You're asking for me to die. And I'll have to for me to throw a wedding for my bride. And so what did, G uh, what did Mary do? What was her plan? Well, it seemed like she just completely ignored what he said. And she said to the servants, well, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. But perhaps there we get a hint of what was happening inside Mary. She was, just, she was just reproved by her son, who showed now that his allegiance is to God the Father above all. She was just reproved by her son, but now perhaps subtly she's showing some faith in him. Because you see, one day, though now his mother, one day she too will have to bow her knee and confess that he is Lord and Saviour too. And so Jesus, he now gets the servants to fill up the six stone jars with water. And Jesus did do something here. He did something with the no wine problem. Now, was this a case where Jesus just changed his mind? You know, could it be that, oh dear, I just spoke so rudely to my mother. Okay, mum, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you say. Was it a case like that? Well, no. In fact, he was making another point here. Because what type of stone jars were they? Look at verse 6. What type of stone jars? The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, if you put that together, in our metric, it is about 680 litres of the finest wine. 680 litres, that is about with standard bottles of wine, that is about 900 bottles of wine. But notice what type of jars. It was used for ceremonial washing. 
It was so that the Jews could wash their utensils, wash whatever, even themselves, so that they would come clean before God. So what's the point Jesus was making there? He could have said, just fill the small jars. That's okay, the ones you normally use to pour water in. But he said, those jars for ceremonial washing. What's the point Jesus was making? You see, this was no random thing. It was all planned. And he made the point, he intended to make the point, that the old order of Jewish laws and customs, that is a thing of the past. There is something new coming, something greater coming, because the Messiah has arrived. And remember last week how Jesus promised his disciples, you will see greater things. You will see heaven open. And so now they're getting a glimpse of the lavish heavenly banquet. And so now the surprise. The servants, they brought some of the wine to the master of the banquet. He's like the MC of the reception. And how did he respond? Well, in Australian, in Australian ways, they say, mate, this is good stuff. That's how he responded. Verses 9 and 10. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You see, the point is clear, isn't it? You have saved the best till now. Jesus is making the point. You will see greater things. There is the best to still come. And they just got a little glimpse of that with the finest wine, with 900 bottles of the finest wine. And so Jesus here provided what the bridegroom could not provide. He's making a point, I am the true bridegroom who will provide lavishly, generously, 900 bottles of the finest wines. But even that is only but a tiny glimpse of the lavish banquet of heaven, the wedding of the Lamb of God. And so they have that to look for. They have that to long for. So Jesus is making a point. I am the true bridegroom, the one who will give you greatest joy, ultimate joy. I'm the one who will throw the biggest wedding. So be surprised. There is greater things to come. And that's perhaps why this was the first miracle, the first sign. You see, out of all the spectacular miracles Jesus will go on to do, and he did, casting out demons, healing the blind man, the leper, raising the dead girl, feeding the 5,000. I mean, they're spectacular miracles. But this was chosen as the first sign because they needed to see, just as we today need to see, that all the joy that we long for, all the fulfillment and satisfaction we long for, is found in Jesus. And the bridegroom has come. He will bring about the consummation of all of God's purposes, of joy embraced in the arms of God, of intimate union with our Saviour. And that should just blow our minds. You see, not so menial anymore. And the purpose of this sign? Well, we read in our final verse, it was to produce faith in him for them and also for us. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Saviour of the world. It is to produce faith in him. Verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. They saw heaven opened. Remember that promise last week? They saw heaven opened. They saw a glimpse 
of the glory of God. But of course, we always want to ask, as we reflect on Scripture, there's always a, a teaching, a message, an implication for us. So what do we make of all of this for us today? What do you think? Well, at least it makes the very point that those who respond like those first disciples, in faith, there are great expectations in life. We can expect greater things. And nothing beats the picture of what Jesus is trying to paint for us here. Even just on a human level, weddings are just wonderful, joyous occasions. Uh, but leading up to the wedding, you know, the stress, the anxiety, so many things to organize and coordinate. But then, despite all that, on the very day of the wedding, from the perspective of the groom up the front, all those worries and stress, they're, they're past. They're, they all disappear. And I get the privilege of standing next to the groom when I'm officiating, and you can see their smiles from face to face, from side to side. It is big. They are happy as they see their bride enter like an angel. It is a surreal experience. There's that great expectation which finally comes to fulfillment on the wedding day. But the picture Jesus is trying to get us to imagine is something bigger, cosmic. Not just human marriages, but something bigger and more glorious than that. The wonderful and glorious weddings, as wonderful as they are, they are mere shadows, only shadows of the greater one to come. Jesus has come and he says, I am the true bridegroom. No one will love me, love you like I love you. No one will ever be able to do that. I am the true bridegroom. I'm the one who can promise you deep down, true, deep, lasting, festival joy, perfect contentment. And I bring you into the family of God. I bring you into my family. I give you my family name and you can call God your father. And I will even bleed and die for you. You see, Jesus is getting us to anticipate that there is this greater wedding, but that's the cost. And that should really help us keep perspective in life because I find this so profound. We can, as Christians, those who exercise faith, live with genuine, great expectations. It is for real. We can be assured of it. One day we'll be at that banquet, not just as onlookers at the reception. Where do we stand? We stand next to the center, next to Christ, the bridegroom. And the wine will flow. The banquet will be lavish. And we are embraced by God himself. And so those of us who, like the disciples, live in faith, we live with that type of expectation. And if you haven't yet responded in faith... I mean, just picture it. However good human weddings are, marriages are, it is nothing compared to that one. And so if you have not yet responded in faith, why would you not? The hour has already come. Jesus was already glorified. He already died on the cross and heaven is already opened. The invitation is always come into the loving embrace of God. But it is with great expectations we can live, but it is also our ultimate fulfillment, where we'll be finally have the sense of completeness, enoughness, abundance, and, and joy beyond our imagination. 
And I suspect it is what we always long for. We long for it. Who wouldn't want to feel fulfilled and be fulfilled? Well, there is no one in this entire world who could offer that. And so that is why, really as an implication for us today, even in good marriages, if you are married, even in very good marriages where you do grow deeper in love and intimacy, in your knowledge of one another, as good as that is, and as good as it's meant to be, it will still never ultimately fulfill us for those of us who are married. Now, if you don't think that way, it, you need to, because otherwise you lay too big of a burden upon your spouse. You see, if Yvonne is meant to find ultimate fulfillment in me alone, her life will be depressing, because I'll disappoint her all the time, over and over again. She's never to find ultimate fulfillment in me. You see, only Christ can do that. Nor am I to expect to find ultimate fulfillment in Yvonne. I cannot expect her to be Christ to me. But you see, the marriage, as good as it is, and it's meant to be good, it is me, a me shadow, looking forward to the greater one that will supersede all others. And that is why also as an implication for those of us who are single, widows, it is perfectly fine and good. It is only for this age. Though it might not feel that way, in eternity... You're not missing out at all. No one is missing out if you exercise faith. You'll be with Christ forever. He'll be your bridegroom, loved by him, embraced by God forever. So no one who is single ever misses us out ultimately. You'll all be ultimately fulfilled. And if we can live knowing and trusting that our ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, it really helps us endure, persevere, whatever comes our way in life, because we can live with greater expectations, knowing that we will be ultimately fulfilled. Might not come in this life, that is okay, but it will happen. Now let me end by sharing with you a story of, of a, a particular man from, from the 1800s, Joseph Scriv Scriven. I found his story when I heard it uh, for the first time, unbelievably moving, just the things he experienced. He was a man who understood that ultimate fulfillment is to be found in Christ. He was an Irish man. After completing his university education, he returned home outside of Dublin. And he was engaged to his childhood sweetheart, childhood love, and soon to take her in marriage. On the day before their wedding, Scriven's fiance rode to meet him alongside the banks of the river. The, the horse suddenly, something happened, jumped up, and she fell down headfirst into the river. Was unconscious and drowned in the river. Imagine that. Scriven, Joseph, he found her shortly after, but she was gone already. He reflected on that. The day before the wedding, he reflected. He said, it, it was like the bottom of my world seemed to disappear. He said, wherever I look in all of Ireland, I always was reminded of the wonderful day I had looked forward to, but never had occurred. And so that was his life. But yet, emotionally shattered, he turned to God for consolation, for guidance. And to overcome the grief, he had to leave Ireland. He went to Canada, settled near town of Port Hope. 
He devoted his life as a Christian, as a devout Christian, helping, serving, caring for those in need. He was called the Good Samaritan in the town. Then eventually, later on, he fell in love with another lady, Eliza Rice. They were to be married in 1854, 1854, but yet only weeks before they were to marry. Another one, tragedy strikes, a second time for him. She became ill with pneumonia and died at an age of 23. Two fiancés. Once again, heartbroken by the loss of the women he loved, once again he found strength in God and looked upon Christ as his closest friend. He found ultimate fulfilment in Christ. He knew it would not be found in even human marriages, though it was heartbreaking. He knew it was to be found in Christ. So how did he get through such a life? Well, the following year, he's the famous hymn writer who wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus. It carried him through. He knew that Jesus is my ultimate friend. The bridegroom has come. I'm to find ultimate fulfillment in him. And so despite his sorrows, and they were many, Jesus promised, the wine will overflow. The lavish banquet is for you, and you are at the center next to Jesus. And the last two lines of his song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, he says this, In his arms he will take and shield thee, thou will find a solace there. Isn't that someone who understands? Ultimate fulfillment found in the Lord Jesus. The bridegroom has come. We can live with faith, with great expectations, knowing that our ultimate fulfillment is found in him. Amen. Let's pray.